0: Oh, there's that. All right. So, five of you are on Facebook. Nobody on YouTube, nobody on Twitch, but this will be good. All right. So, welcome to our Bible study, Wednesday evening Bible study, uh, which took a hiatus. I looked it up uh, all the way since February 10th until now, April 7th. So, that's basically two months we took off. Uh, We did that because, because, of course, on Wednesday evenings, During the season of Lent, we had our uh, Lent and midweek services. We considered the martyrs of the church, of uh, many of the martyrs, Old Testament and New Testament. And then uh, also then last week, of course, was Holy Week. So good to have you all here with us for our Bible study. Uh, I said it's on the book of Hebrews, but tonight we're going to actually have to take a little bit of a detour, or as the, uh, uh, the smart ivory tower people call it, an excursus. So we're going to go around something and then come back to where we were. That's what that means. Excursus. All right. Hopefully you can hear me just fine. Uh, one of my mics I'm going to have to set up um, for somebody to do an audiobook recording, actually, uh, that'll be producing a book for the church. So that'll be fun. Uh, so I'm using this microphone, which is a little bit different. It sounds different. But there you go. All right. I don't see you saying anything. Normally you check in down below. Say like, hello, welcome. You know, right here. Check in the chat window. All right. Um, so hopefully you see that. So what we're going to do for our excursus is we're going to talk about um, the relationship of the divine service in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we're going to do it by way of the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. Well, first we'll do the Augsburg Confession and then the Apology. Uh, now, the reason for this is that there is a misunderstanding about, there are people checking in. Well, how come I'm not seeing the chat? All right, Uh, private chat? No, not a private chat. My chat window isn't showing me chat. Okay, hold on, let me bring the chat up. Eileen, Gus, Tim, all right, good to have you. I don't know why the chat's not working in this window. Let's see, I'll bring up the chat window down below make this extra complicated for me. All right, there we go. Yeah. Huh. I wonder why the chat isn't coming through here. Okay. Well, anyway, back to what we were talking about. Sorry for that. A little bit of a distraction. Three chat amplitude. Oh. Analytics, analytics. Okay. I don't know. Good enough. Uh, if you post a chat, I'll see it down below. So that'll be good. All right. So back to the point. Um, the Old Testament sacrifices, which we've been talking about at length, in regards to the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is um, taking those sacrifices and the priesthood in particular. Remember we talked about Melchizedek? You know, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is Psalm, what was it, 110 verse 4, if I remember right? And then also we did a little bit from Psalm 2, that those two key verses serve as like the exegetical foundation. That is the interpretive key for the book of Hebrews, at least for uh, all the way through chapter 8, which is where we left off before. So before we go into chapter 9, which is going to talk even more um, about the divine service and how to serve with a clean conscience, which I want to make sure we dig in plenty of, um, we need to understand, uh, rather understand rightly, the Old Testament sacrifices. And the reason for that is, it says that the YouTube stream is finished, huh? Facebook. All right. So something's wrong with my comments section. That's what's going on here. Uh, Hold on a second. Let's look this up. Um, Oh, yes. If we misunderstand the Old Testament sacrifices, then it will actually affect um, how we understand the New Testament sacrifice. All right. And that New Testament sacrifice, um, quite specifically, is the sacrifice of Christ Jesus for us for the forgiveness of sins. All right. Yeah, it says everything's online, but apparently the uh, the chat feature is not doing well at the moment. Hmm. Bizarre. Okay. Well, I'm not gonna worry about it then. Uh, cause I can't I can't see your chats either. Well, that's kind of annoying. You saw my chat. I'll try to open up the chat window again here. Nope, it's still doing that. <laughs> Facebook event is not live, but it is live. Ah, so bizarre. Bizarro, bizarro, bizarro. All right. Well, uh, here, I I guess uh, my mom's in here so she can, uh, if she sees a question, she could text it to me and then I'll be able to see it. Okay. Well, that's convoluted, but uh, well, so it is. That's so weird. I don't know. I have no idea why that's not working. Okay, so if we don't understand the Old Testament sacrifices correctly, then uh, we don't understand the sacrifice of Christ correctly. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews has really been spending um, so much effort on. The problem is, is that um, that misunderstanding of the Old Testament sacrifices and then the way it's rightly understood by the writer to the Hebrews hasn't always been applied to the life of the Church. And in particular, uh, what Philip Melanchthon noted, um, that's Luther's contemporary at Wittenberg, Uh, he's the uh, What's he called? He's called the uh, Teacher of the Germans, I think, is his kind of colloquial title. Um, That Philip Melanchthon, in particular, I can bring up the Facebook window, let me do that. Uh, He noted that the Roman Church of his day, well, what, what we would call the Church Catholic of his day, had, the medieval Catholic Church, had actually taken a misunderstanding of the Old Testament sacrifices and had brought it to bear, here, yeah, see, it's live online. I don't know what's going on. Had brought it to bear upon um, their understanding of the Lord's Supper. All right, so I'll say that again. That the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church had taken a misunderstanding of the Old Testament sacrifice sacrifices and had applied it to the Lord's Supper, or as they would call, the Mass. All right, there I've got the chat window up, so hopefully that will work. Teacher of the Germans, I think, is it All right. And I'll leave myself muted so I don't hear myself. <laughs> All right, so now I should be able I will see your chats eventually. Good. All right, so we got that taken care of. Um, so what they call the mass, uh, is that's that's actually just shorthand. We we called it the mass too, by the way. Um, and then later we abandoned the title. But they called the Mass or the Lord's Supper, the divine service, or the culminating point of the divine service. That comes from the last word Misa asked which means that uh, the assembling of the people in Latin is done. Misa est, right? So the Mass is ended. That's it. So uh, you could say the congregation is ended, if you want to say it a different way. That's all it means. A lot of things in the church are named after uh, the first word in Latin or the last word in Latin, right? So think Sanctus is named after holy, or uh, what would be another example? Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, Kyrie, um, Lord glory in excelsis, right? Glory be to God on high, etc. Right. So mass, that's where that word mass comes from. So uh, let's do this. Let's see if I can get the screen up on there. let uh, see if you don't mind the picture-in-picture version. We can try that. Voila. Oh, I'm so small. Can I make myself bigger? No, I cannot. Alright, so that's one option. How about we try this option? That one's pretty nice. We can try that. Oh, uh, change my background. Let's make it a little bit more psychedelic. There we go. All right. <laughs> um, so I said we'd look at the Augsburg Confession first on the Mass, and then you're going to see what happens here. All right, so articles of faith and doctrine. Articles about matters of dispute in which uh, an account is given of the abuses which have been corrected. All right. Now, this is important to note. In the Augsburg Confession, there's two categories of articles. Uh, all the introductory articles up through Article 21 uh, are things that we did not think that the Roman Church would have disagreement with us about, um, but that we expect expected that in conversation we'd be um, largely in agreement, if not entirely. And so then the final uh, seven articles, so Articles 22 through 28, are the things that we knew we had conflict with the Roman Church on. And those are um, both kinds in the sacrament, which you can see there, the marriage of priests, okay? The Mass, which we're going to look at in a minute. Confession, all right? So here in particular, um, our emphasis is on absolution. We knew that theirs was on um, penance, as the doctrine of penance, the medieval doctrine of penance, okay? Uh, distinction of foods, this is the whole red meat on Friday thing. Um, mandatory fast, in other words. Monastic vows, all right, which we said were ungodly. Uh, that you would vow yourself for a lifetime although you you're free too could be committed for a lifetime um, that vow um, cannot you know be held as permanent and then the power of bishops so the authority of the of the bishops so we knew there'd be conflict on those seven uh, and so those were the first ones written and then the rest were written um, just to kind of provide a back foundation to say here's how we come to these articles all right so first we're going to look at the mass and it's not that long um, actually it's quite a bit it's quite a bit What did I say? I said it wasn't that long. It's 41 paragraphs. (laughs) So um, we'll just read the beginning of it and then we'll look at the apology. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. All right. So we are unjustly accused of having abolished the mass. All right. And that's in John Eck, uh, his 404 Theses. Without boasting, it is manifest that the mass is observed among us with greater devotion and more earnestness than our opponent's. Now, that's a dig right away, isn't it not? <laughs> we observe it with greater devotion and more earnestness than our opponents in the Roman Church. Moreover, the people are instructed often and with great diligence concerning the Holy Sacrament, why it was instituted, and how it is to be used, namely, as a comfort for terrified consciences, in order that the people may be drawn to the communion and mass. Right, So communion, we would say, is the reception of the Lord's Supper, the mass being the, the liturgy, the divine service. The people are also given instruction about other false teachings concerning the sacrament. Meanwhile, no conspicuous changes have been made in the public ceremonies of the Mass. I'm going to go to the little picture-in-picture, picture so it's even bigger for you. There you go. Except that in certain places, German hymns are sung in addition to Latin responses for all the instruction for the instruction and exercise of the people. All right. So the vernacular is uh, the language. And, and since uh, Vatican II for the Roman Church. Um, you can have liturgy in other languages than Latin as well. After all, the chief purpose of all ceremonies is to teach the people what they need to know about Christ. I love this expression. I feel like like every pastor should just have that uh, emblazoned on his study. Right? Why, Pastor, why do you do what you do? So that people would know what they need to know about Christ. That's why we do what we do. Right? And if it's not, then we should get rid of it. Before our time, however, the Mass came to be misused in many ways, as is well known, by turning it into a sort of fair, by buying and selling it, think money changers in the temple, and by observing it in almost all churches for a mod- monetary consideration. So people would pay the priest to say a Mass. Right? That still happens today. They say, We say that's an abuse. Such abuses were often condemned by learned and devout men even before our time, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Men like Nicholas of Cusa, John Towler, John Garrison, and Gabriel Beale, who were all teachers in the Roman Church. Then, when our preachers preached about these things, and the priests were reminded of the terrible responsibility which should properly concern every Christian, namely, that whoever uses the sacrament unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of Christ, right? you know that from the Catechism in 1 Corinthians 11, such mercenary masses and private masses, mercenary meaning paid for and private meaning done in secret, which had been hitherto been held under compulsion for the sake of revenues and stipends were discontinued in our churches. At the same time, the abominable error was condemned according to which it was taught that our Lord Christ has by his death made satisfaction only for original sin and had instituted the mass as a sacrifice for other sins. Now here's the key, a sacrifice for other sins. All right, Um, so, and where are they going to get this notion of Sacrifice. I think Melanchthon figures it out. They're getting it from a misunderstanding of the Old Testament sacrifices. All right. So um, that Jesus only died for your sinful nature, we might say, um, but then everything that you've done since then uh, must be atoned for by yourself. So it's Jesus plus you <laughs> saves you. Of course, then you get the not only with penance, then you end up with the doctrine of purgatory. All right. So that comes in as well. Then Melanchthon um, says, this transformed the mass into a sacrifice for the living and the dead, a sacrifice by means of which sin was taken away and God was reconciled. Right? We reconcile ourselves to God, not he reconciles himself to us. Thereupon followed a debate as to whether one mass held by, for many people merited as much as a special mass held for an individual. Out of this group, countless multiplication of masses by the performance of which men expected to get everything they needed from God. Meanwhile, key here, faith in Christ and true service of God were forgotten <laughs> all right and so uh, so you get the the picture now when uh, this article is is given uh, to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles v the, at the uh, diet of Augsburg in 1530 so this is after the catechisms people have been instructed in the Lord's Supper etc um, then the Roman Church writes their response it's called the confutation the confutation Um and, of course, they took great issue with what's said in this article, but, as well, they should um, because it's quite direct. All right. And then, um, in response to the confutation, we write what's called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, also written by Philip Melanchthon. Uh, apology It comes from the Greek apologia, which means to defend. All right? So sometimes when you make an apology, um, it isn't a defense. And people say, well, that's kind of not a great apology. You just kind of defended yourself. Well... That's actually technically what an apology is, is you're making a defense. Uh, Maybe there is no defense to be made for yourself, Uh, so then your apology is to say, I have no excuse. (laughs) I have no defense. I have no apology. Uh, But that's not how it's used today, so uh, be careful how you uh, go about that. All right, I see no comments on Facebook. It's still playing down there, so all right, good. Now, uh, we should go to the apology then, and we're going to see how Melanchthon takes what happened um, in the confutation and then he rightly identifies um, that the real problem here is the word sacrifice. All right, so to begin with, we must repeat the prefatory statement that we do not abolish the mass, we saw this back in the Augsburg Confession, but religiously keep and defend it. In our church's mass is celebrated every Sunday and on other festivals uh, when the sacrament is offered to those who wish for it after they have been examined and absolved. All right. Um, now, is this descriptive or prescriptive? I take it as um, descriptive, um, but but uh, we have chosen to prescribe this in our church. All right? So we do celebrate the Mass every Sunday. And uh, there's very little justification for not having the Lord's Supper each Sunday. All right? Um, I, I can't even, There's nothing according to God's Word that you can use to justify it. So take this as prescriptive, if you like. It's describing our churches. And uh, maybe you should apply it to your church as well. So we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday and on other festivals. All right, so obviously we had it last week on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, um, at the Easter Vigil, and then Easter Sunday as well. Uh, when the sacrament is offered to those who wish for it after they have been examined and absolved. Good. If there's nobody there to receive it, we don't offer it. We keep traditional liturgical forms, such as the order of the lessons, prayers, and vestments. So that's why our churches look like a Roman Catholic church, because we retain those things. There's nothing wrong with them. It can be held without sin. All right. So we have our Roman investments. um, We use the prayers, like our prayer of the church is from Gregory the Great. Um, Or if you're on the three-year series, it comes from Vatican II. Um, The Order of the Lessons, those are also from Gregory. And with the one-year series, the three-year series coming uh, later on. All right. In a long harangue, that's in the confutation, about the use of the Latin in the Mass, our clever opponents quibble about how a hearer who is ignorant of the faith of the Church benefits from hearing a Mass that he does not understand. <laughs> yeah, every Sunday, but not at every service. Well, I would disagree with that, but thats uh, I see that in the comment there. Um, but so it is. Um, I suppose if you wanted to receive the sacrament every Sunday, you just have to learn how to figure out which service it's at. Uh, that seems like an unnecessary hoop to jump through in my book, but uh, so it is. Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. <laughs> How can it be beneficial to hear something that's not in a language you understand? Well, I, you know, I've been to church services uh, in Russian. I've been to them in French. I've been to service in... I'm trying to think if I've heard any other languages. Oh, I, uh, yep, service in German. Um, but I knew a little German. I knew enough French to kind of make my way through it. The sermon was horrible. Um... And the Russian sermon, that was a Lutheran church, but in Russian. Um, I knew the liturgy. I figured out the liturgy pretty well because it follows the same order as ours. Different music, but same order. I'm um, not sure what he said in the sermon, but so it is. All right. So, yeah, you don't get as much out of it, of course, because if you can't understand the words, it's actually about the word. Apparently, they imagine that mere hearing is a beneficial act of worship, even when there is no understanding. <laughs> Alright, so you're going to see where this goes, uh, because it actually comes to bear uh, also with the bread and the wine, or the body and blood. We do not want to belabor this point, but we leave it up to the judgment of the reader. We mention this only in passing in order to point out that our churches keep the Latin lessons and prayers. All right, So um, there are congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that um, use Latin within their services. I mean, we could. you know, Christe eleison, curiae eleison, right? Well, you know what that means. <laughs> it's literally translated into English, right? Glory in excelsis Deo. No, you know that. Oh, oh, oh. We sing it in the hymn. All right, so we still sing some Latin. Um, and we could sing more Latin, Latin psalms, etc. Uh, but it would be incumbent upon us then also to teach the people some Latin <laughs> so they understand what they're hearing or singing. The purpose of observing ceremonies is that men may learn the scriptures and that those who have been touched by the word may receive faith and fear and so may also pray. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful. I should I should frame that one too. The purpose of observing ceremonies is that men may learn the scriptures and that those who have been touched by the word may receive faith and fear, and so may also pray. Therefore, we keep Latin for the sake of those who study and understand it, and we insert German hymns to give the common people something to learn that will arouse their faith and fear. All right, And then there's also German hymn versions of Latin canticles, for example, so that they could learn the Latin Song, but they learn it in German in in a hymn form. All right, this has all. Actually, we sang one on Sunday. Uh, Christ is arisen from the graves dark prison. That's Luther translating a Latin canticle into German, and now we translated into English. Uh, This has always been the custom in the churches, though German hymns have varied in frequency. Yet almost everywhere the people sang in their own language. No one has ever written or suggested that men benefit from hearing lessons they do not understand, or. From ceremonies that do not teach or admonish. Simply, and here's the key phrase, ex opera operato. So this uh, this translation of the Book of Concord chose to leave that in Latin. This is a German text, but the Latin is inserted. Ex opera operato. That is, um, by the working of the work, it does it. So simply by doing something, it benefits you, even if you don't understand what you're doing. Hmm. As he defines there, by the mere of doing or observing. Out With such pharisaical ideas. Ooh, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Hmm Pharisaical. So think about the Pharisees, right? I mean, that's that's a good example Um, uh, Jesus, we just studied this with the children here this afternoon, our late evening, uh, that Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple well, and there were two reasons for that Uh, one we might say was because the uh, money change, well, the purpose of those sacrifices in the temple were no longer needed because Christ is the sac- our sacrifice. Right? Um, so during Holy Week, when he drives them out, that's part of his work of, similar to the tearing of the temple curtain. Right? That this is all being brought to a close. Um, but it also might be uh, that those Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and rulers of the people, all the ways that they're listed, Uh, had understood now or now understood the sacrifices as benefiting the people, benefiting forgiveness of sins apart from the word of God. Just by the mere doing of it, God would be pleased with them, which would make them no different than a pagan altar and a pagan temple, right? Where they just sacrifice animals to appease uh, angry God. Um, That's not what Moses instituted in Leviticus, for example. All right. Um, So Jesus did the same thing. And here they call it out with such Pharisaical ideas. All right. There is nothing contrary to the Church Catholic in our having only the public or common Mass. All right. So, no private or mercenary Masses, as we saw back in Augsburg. Private meaning nobody's there. You just paid the priest. Mercenary, um, you're just paying, uh, you're wealthy and you want to get some time off of purgatory, that kind of thing. Even today, Greek parishes have no private masses but only one public mass. And this is only on Sundays and festivals. (laughs) See, so we're more like the Greeks actually. Um, And this is also, by the way, it's interesting they note this, this is also a really good case for only having one Sunday service. And if your church is too large for one, then you start another church. That's what the Greeks do. Um, I heard that from a Greek uh, priest, so. If they outgrow their church, they either have to build a new building or they have to start another church. So, you'll often see many Greek uh, churches nearby each other, and that's the reason for that. uh, Because there's one Sunday divine service, or mass. The monasteries have public, though daily, mass. These are remnants of ancient practice for the fathers of the church before Gregory make no mention of private masses. Ooh, name drop. Gregory and the other fathers. Okay. All right, we're getting to the point of sacrifice here. For the present, we forego any discussion of their origins. But it is clear that the prevalence of the mendicant friars brought on the multiplication of private masses. All right, let's skip all this. Uh, So when it suits them, they change the institutions of the fathers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, Here's a a quote from the fathers. This is from uh, Epiphanius. Assemblies for the communion were appointed by the apostles to be held on the fourth day, on Sabbath Eve, and on the Lord's Day. So Wednesday, Saturday night, and Sunday. Huh, look at that our opponents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we want to remind our readers of the real issue, and that's what we're getting to. No ex opera operato. They keep quoting that. Ex opera operato. All right. Now I want to get to the thing that we're going to talk about. Ah, uh, yes, here it is. Though we have already stated our case, we must add a few things because of the way our opponents have twisted many passages of Scripture in defense of their errors. The confutation... Has a great deal to say about sacrifice. Here it is. Though in our confession, we purposely avoided this term because of its ambiguity. This is really important um, when it comes to uh, how we read the Bible, right? Is that we must understand the words that we say, uh, that we look, we understand the context, we look at, or we look for the context, we look at how that word is used in other contexts, in other writings of similar, at the time of the Bible. Other Greek writings, for example, um, and uh, and and that's how we purposely uh, come to its understanding. If a word is ambiguous, um, then we don't, then we have to try to find its meaning, right? And they're saying sacrifice in their context at the time of the Reformation is an ambiguous term. We could do this. Well, that's kind of fun too. We could do that for a bit. All right. Um, We have already described the current understanding of sacrifice among those whose abuses we criticize. Now we shall explain the passages of Scripture which they have distorted. And to do this, we must first set down the nature of sacrifice. All right? Now this is why we're doing this. Because again, um, I think we can misunderstand the... um, Not the book of Hebrews, but the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, We could come to the right understanding through the book of Hebrews, which is what we've been doing, and we will be doing even more so moving forward. That's why we wanna lay this groundwork. All right, so they've been publishing for 10 years endless books about sacrifice, but none of them have defined it. (laughs) They find the term sacrifice in either the scriptures or the fathers and use it out of context, attaching their own ideas to it, as if it meant whatever they want it to mean. (laughs) Like the word, oh, I don't know, grace. (laughs) Would be one. Yeah, I see Grace in there. and Janet's in there. All right? All right. So we gotta we have to define the word and not just f- use the word and then just attach whatever meaning we want to it. And Grace is, is a word that's used that way. Um, there's a famous document from uh, the, I think, early 90s, mid 90s. It's called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. The Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. J-D-D-J. Um, and it was between liberal Lutherans and uh, some Roman Catholic priests, uh, theologians. Um, and what they agreed to do, this is very interesting, given what we just read here, is they agreed that we have the same teaching on justification, we just use different words and we mean different things by the words. Oh no, we use the same words, we just mean different things by the words. That's what they said. Yeah. That's the kind of, <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really broad brush, but but I think we're getting there, getting close to the point. Yeah. So when when Rome says justification and when Lutherans say justification, we're using the same word. We just mean slightly different things. And, and so really the problem isn't so much that we don't believe the same thing. We just don't use the words the same way. And so it's just kind of a big misunderstanding. <laughs> uh, where it, it's if you read it closely, you'll find out that uh, the Roman church gave up nothing in that doctrine, in that document, by the way. Uh, they said, we're right. And the Lutheran said, we yeah, maybe we were just wrong this whole time. <laughs> so... So, uh, yeah, anyway, and it didn't unify the church, which was the whole point of actually trying to come to consensus is that, you know, through this kind of conciliatory document, then we would all agree and then we could reunite again. And uh, no, it didn't actually accomplish that because we didn't actually agree. Hmm. Go figure. All right. So, sacrifice. We have Plato's Phaedrus, Um, Socrates says that he's very fond of distinctions, because without them nothing can be explained or understood in a discussion, and that if he found someone skilled in making them, he would be able to follow in his footsteps as those of a god, right? So now he's talking about making distinctions. This is Melanchthon showing off that he knows the classics, right? Our enumeration of the types of sacrifice will make clear, right? The theologians make a proper distinction between sacrament and sacrifice, all right. So this is this is key here. There's a distinction between a sacrament and a sacrifice. The genus common to both could be ceremony or sacred act. So they're both ceremony and they're both or a sacred act, a holy thing, but they're not the same thing. A sacrament is a ceremony or act in which God offers us the content of the promise joined to the ceremony. This is our definition of a sacrament, all right? Which does exclude some things that Rome would call a sacrament. Right, so a ceremony or act in which God offers us the content of the promise, joined to the ceremony. So the two things required. This is just quoting Saint Augustine, by the way. Um, So it's it's full on Augustinian theology here, is to say um, there must be. This is his definition of a sacrament. There must be a word of promise attached to um, some means to a ceremony. Right. So here we go. Baptism is not just an act in which we offer to God. That which we offer to God, but one in which God baptizes us through the minister functioning in His place, and of course, there's water, right? So there's the promise and there's water. Here, God offers and presents the forgiveness of sins according to the promise in Matthew sixteen sixteen. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. By way of contrast, a sacrifice is a ceremony or act in which we render to God to honor Him. All right, so um, you could think of this in terms of direction up, upwards and downwards. Right? A sacrament is God coming to us and giving to us. Uh, sacrifice is us giving to God. Now, of course, we have nothing to give to God except for that which he gives to us. <laughs> All right. Now, within those acts of sacrifice to God, they said there are only two um, basic types of sacrifice. One is a propitiatory sacrifice. So we, now we can define this word. We, you've heard many. Um, propitiation, right? This is a work of satisfaction for guilt or punishment that reconciles God or placates his wrath or merits forgiveness of sins for others. So there's your definition. A work of satisfaction for guilt and punishment that reconciles God or placates his wrath or merits um, in the f- uh, the forgiveness of sins for others. Is that a, yeah, propitiation, okay. So, um this would be like making amends, right? So if you steal, then you would return you know, what you've stolen plus interest or something like that. Yeah, Eileen says, can be confusing, sacrament and sacrifice. Well, it's not confusing. Everything that <clears throat> happens in the divine service in, in the Lutheran Church is all sacrament. The only sacrifice is the things that come out of your mouth and maybe out of your hands, okay? So that would be your words, which are a sacrifice of praise, um, maybe your offerings of thanksgiving, right? Um, and your prayers. Those are all sacrifices uh, of words uh, from your heart. Okay. Um, the other type of sac- uh, is a Eucharistic sacrifice. That's a Thanksgiving sacrifice. This does not merit the forgiveness of sins or reconciliation, but by it, those who have been reconciled give thanks or show their gratitude for the forgiveness of sins and the other blessings received. All right. Now, I should say there is a sacrifice that's received in the divine service, but it's Christ's sacrifice at the cross where he does the work of satisfaction for guilt and punishment, reconciles God to us, placates God's wrath, and merits the forgiveness of sins for us. All right, so the first kind, the propitiatory sacrifice is Jesus' sacrifice for us, which we heard about on Good Friday in particular. right, the Eucharistic sacrifice, the Thanksgiving sacrifice is what we return to him in just gratitude or thanksgiving for having been forgiven and all the other blessings we receive. All right. So I, this is a really helpful paragraph, paragraph 19, I think, um, to show that distinction. In this controversy, as well as in many others, we must never lose sight of these two types of sacrifice and be very careful not to confuse them. This is a Lutheran distinctive, um, if you haven't experienced this, uh, is that we not only distinguish words and background and context, but we also make sure that, that we clearly define or distinguish different kinds of words. Um, so think about the distinction that's in the formula of Concord between the law and the gospel, right? It's another distinction um, because those words are different and they have different purposes, according to God. If the limits of this book permitted, (laughs) we would enumerate the many proofs for this distinction found, here it is, in the epistle of Hebrews and elsewhere. Look at that. All right. So it's just referenced here, but... There's no quote. They said we don't have time to actually go through the book of Hebrews, <laughs> which is what we've been doing, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna run right up against this in Hebrews 10, especially. All right, these two kinds of sacrifice. So Hebrews 10 verse 5 and following. So we'll get to that at some point. Okay, all the Levitical sacrifices, the Old Testament ones, can be classified under one uh, or other another of these heads. Right. So either they're propitiatory, they're for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, they placate God's wrath, right? Are they for for the sins of of others, of the people, for example, of Israel, or they're offerings of thanksgiving? That would be like the bread sacrifice, for example. Old Testament called certain sacrifices propitiatory, because of what they signified and foreshadowed. Now this is key: did the the sacrifices of blood of and of the blood of bulls and goats and uh, um and whatnot take away sins? Not in and of themselves. But only because of what they signified or foreshadowed. Got it? Namely, the sacrifice of Christ, our Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So they point forward to that. right? They're a sign of that. Um, they did not merit the forgiveness of sins in the sight of God, but they did on the basis of the justice of the law. those for whom, thus for those, excuse me, thus those for whom they were offered did not have to be excluded from the Commonwealth. They were accordingly called propitiatory sacrifices for sin or burnt offerings for trespasses. The Eucharistic sacrifices were the oblation, that's the washing, the drink offerings, the thank offering, that's the wave offering. That's where you wave the, the piece of meat. <laughs> so there's some interesting ones. Uh, the first fruits, right? That's your uh, tithe. And oh, there's the tithes. First fruits, so that'd be of a harvest, and then the tithes, that's of all your gifts. And you can see all that in Leviticus 1. Chapter 1 through (laughs) 7. There has really been, here's the key, only one propitiatory sacrifice in the world, the death of Christ, as the epistle to the Hebrews teaches. Hebrews 10 verse 4. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Ooh, it's straight up quoted right there. A little later it says about the will of Christ, verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. And here's the key. Once for all, no more need for propi- propitiatory sacrifices, sacrifice for sins, to appease God's wrath, etc. That's that's been done. Um, so you can rightly actually say that Christians who live in the forgiveness of Christ's forgiveness do not experience God's wrath. Hmm. They do experience God's discipline, His punishment, um, His correction, but not His wrath. Right? His wrath has been appeased and placed upon His son, by being placed upon His Son. This is key. All right, Isaiah interprets the law to mean that the death of Christ is a real satisfaction or expiation for our sins, pouring out of blood for our sins, as the ceremonies of the law were not. Therefore, he says in Isaiah fifty three ten, we heard on Good Friday. So again, this is why we're looking at this now. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring; he shall prolong his days. The word he uses here, uh, "sasam," means a victim sacrificed for transgression. An offering for sin. In the Old Testament, this meant that a victim was to come to reconcile God and to make satisfaction for our sins, so that men might know that God does not want our own righteousness, but the merits of another, namely of Christ, to reconcile him to us. All right. So Christ is our uh, Paschal victim. You've heard that language, right? Christians to the Paschal victim. Heard that? I sung that on Sunday. We'll sing it again this week. All right. That 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 uh, ancient hymn. Christians to the paschal victim, right? So he dies in our place to reconcile God and make satisfaction for our sins. Paul interprets the same word as sin in Romans 8.3. As a sin offering, he condemns sin. That is, through an offering for sin. We can understand the meaning of the word more readily if we look to the customs which the heathen adopted from their misinterpretation of the patriarchal tradition. All right, so we're going to skip some of this. The Greeks... All right. All right. Given the time, um, I'm going to keep going here a little bit. Eucharistic sacrifices of praise. All right. Here we go for paragraph 26. The sacrifices of the New Testament are of this type. Um, that is, um, eucharistic sacrifices of praise, as Saint uh, Saint Peter teaches in 1 Peter 2, the holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices are contrasted not only with the sacrifices of cattle, but also with human works offered ex opera operato, for, quote, spiritual refers to the operation of the Holy Spirit within us. Paul teaches the same in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There it is, Eucharistic sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your This is how you respond in thanks to what God has done for you in Christ, right? Is to offer yourself up uh, as a sacrifice, right? Uh, Lord, make me your servant, would be a way to say this. Spiritual worship is a worship in which we take, which the spirit knows and takes hold of God, as it does when it fears and trusts in him. Therefore, the contrast is not only with Levitical worship, where cattle were slaughtered, but with any worship where men suppose they are offering God a work, ex opera operato, again, just by the benefit of doing it, right? That's excluded entirely. Again, the epistle to the Hebrews teaches the same here now. Hebrews 13:5 Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God with with the interpretation quote that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name right so it tells you exactly what the sacrifice of praise is it's that we just acknowledge him and we say thank's he commands them to offer praises that is prayer thanksgiving confession and the like these are valid not ex opera operato not just by the doing of them but because of faith All right we see this from the phrase through Him, let us offer, namely through faith in Christ. In short, <laughs> we're not even done yet. The worship of the New Testament is spiritual. It is the righteousness of faith in the heart of the and fruits of faith. Thus, it abrogates, that is, um, overcomes, eliminates, right? Super supersedes Levitical worship. Right? We don't make sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs anymore because Christ is our lamb. He is. He's all of those sacrifices um, culminated in one. They all pointed forward to Him. Thus Christ says in John 4, 23 and 24, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father um, seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right. Uh, More on the ex opera operato, which we don't want to focus on because it doesn't have as much to do with Hebrews. All right. Uh, Sorry for the scrolling. All right, now we got to get to paragraph 32 here. Yeah. Hmm. Or maybe we want to go a little bit farther, just in the interest of time. Prophets' own words, more ex opera, operato, New Testament, Malachi. Da, da, da. You can read this on your own. Our opponents always apply the term sacrifice only to the ceremony. They omit the proclamation of the gospel, faith, prayer, and things like that. Right. So it's just the doing of things without the Word of God, which does not benefit you, by the way. Because without the Word of God, there's no faith. Without faith, you cannot... Uh, perform any sacrifice, hmm. because there's nothing to give Eucharistic Thanksgiving or sacrifice for, right? <laughs> Unless you've received something first. New Testament requires sacrifices of the heart, not the ceremonial sacrifices for sin offered by the Levitical priesthood. Um, all right, here's where we're going to pick up. I think, yeah, let's do this. Thirty-five. They also refer to the daily sacrifice, as there was a daily sacrifice in the Old Testament. So the Mass ought to be a daily sacrifice of the New Testament. Seems logical, right? Paschal Victim, Paschal Bread. Oh yeah, we sing that in the... dun. How's that go? Paschal Victim, Paschal Bread. Insincerity, faith and love. Eat we manna from above, alleluia. Okay. I can't remember the name of the hymn. (laughs) We just sang it on Sunday, I think. All right, Uh, let's see. Our opponents will really achieve something if we let them defeat us with allegories, but it is evident that allegory does not prove or establish anything. All right, so allegory or analogy, well, because they did it this way in the Old Testament, we should do it this way in the New Testament. It doesn't actually prove anything because Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper, for example, it's unique. It's a New Testament. He even calls it a New Testament in my blood not the old covenant it's a new one we are perfectly willing for the mass to be understood as a daily sacrifice provided this means the whole mass the ceremony and also the proclamation of the gospel faith prayer and Thanksgiving taken together these are the daily sacrifice of the New Testament that is the sacrifice of the people right the ceremony was instituted because of them and ought not to be separated from them therefore Paul says 1 Corinthians 11 26 as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death see We eat the bread and drink the cup, which is the sacramental gift, and then in response of Eucharistic Thanksgiving, Eucharist meaning Thanksgiving, in Thanksgiving, we offer a sacrifice of proclamation, proclaiming his death. From the Levitical analogy, it does not follow at all that there must be a ceremony that justifies by the doing of it or that merits the forgiveness of sins when applied to others. All right, now here is really key. So here's where we're going to see the understanding of Old Testament and New Testament worship put side by side again, all right? And it's going to be, again, of, we haven't done this yet. Um, There's going to be the shadow of the thing, and then there's going to be um, the reality, what it signifies and symbolizes, right? So the Old Testament is the symbol, figure, type, or analogy of the thing that is really real, right? Um, So I'll just summarize them before we read it here. There's the burning of the lamb, the drink offering, and the flower offering, which are then all, types or shadows of the death of Christ, the sprinkling of Christ's blood by the proclamation of the gospel and the confession of faith, prayer, and thanksgiving of the people. Yeah. All right. So this analogy um, symbolizes not only the ceremony, but the proclamation of the gospel. Numbers twenty-eight four lists three parts of this, this daily sacrifice, the burning of the lamb, the drink offering, and the offering of flour, right? Those three. And then those are all going to be picked up in the New Testament in in different ways. The Old Testament had pictures or shadows of what has to come, which we just talked about. Um, You can see Colossians 2.17 for that if you want. Thus, this depicted Christ and the whole worship of the New Testament. The burning of the Lamb symbolizes the death of Christ. The drink offering symbolizes the sprinkling, that is, the sanctifying of believers throughout the world with the blood of the Lamb by the proclamation of the Gospel, as St. Peter says, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. And then the offering of the people of flour symbolizes, again, the Eucharistic sacrifice of the people today, faith, prayer, and thanksgiving in the heart. Therefore, as we discern the shadow in the Old Testament, so in the New, we should look for what it represents and not for another symbol that seems to be a sacrifice. Right. Do I need to read that again? Probably. Therefore, as we Discern the shadow in the, Old, in the Old Testament, so in the New we should look for what it represents and not for another symbol that seems to be a sacrifice. Although the ceremony is a memorial of the death of Christ, right, the ceremony of the Mass, therefore it is not the daily sacrifice by itself. Right? It's only a ceremony of memorial. The commemoration is the real daily sacrifice, the proclamation of the faith which truly believes that by the death of Christ, God has been reconciled. There must be a drink offering, namely the effect of the proclamation, that is, we are sanctified, put to death, and made alive when the gospel sprinkles us with the blood of Christ. There must also be an offering in the thanksgiving, confession, and affliction. Is that what they said before? Faith, prayer, and thanksgiving in the heart, and here it's thanksgiving, confession, and affliction. But that thanksgiving, confession, and affliction, those are the response of the people um, to the proclamation of the gospel, the being put to death and being made alive again, um, being sanctified, made holy, through the preaching of the word, which is the sprinkling of blood, the drink offering. So you see how they do that? Say, okay. Um, how Melanchthon does that. It says, the Old Testament sacrifices are types or shadows of of the daily dying and rising that we have in Christ that comes through the proclamation of his word, to which we respond with thanks, confession, and, aff- and affliction. Right. Uh, let's see. Did I read 37? Yeah, I read 37, so that's good. Now, uh, let's see what we've covered. We did that, we did that, we did that. All right, now we have to look at what is delivered by sacrament and sacrifice. So we're gonna have to skip ahead quite a bit here. We're gonna go to paragraph 53 satisfactions, enumeration of sins, all sorts of things you can read here. I love this statement, and as for outward appearances, our church attendance is greater than theirs <laughs> Oh, oh, even the... they are always so much so much bragging, practical and clear sermons hold an audience, but neither the people nor the clergy have ever understood our opponents teaching. <laughs> oh, that's so funny, yeah, our churches are better than yours. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, well, I guess it's not politically correct, but it's good. The real, the, I've quoted this before, um, but I, I think it's a great statement. It's not really relevant to our conversation right now, but it, uh, he throws it out, and I think it's worth re- reading. The real adornment of the churches is godly, practical, and clear teaching, the godly use of the sacraments, ardent and prayer, and the like. Candles, golden vessels, and ornaments like that are fitting, but they are not the peculiar adornment of the church. Right? So the church is adorned. It's, it's wrapped up, it's clothed in the preaching of God's word, the, in the use of the sacraments and the prayers of the people. Isn't that beautiful? What makes a church beautiful? It's the preaching of God's word, it's the reception of that word in the sacrament sacraments, and it's the responsive prayer of the people. That's what makes it beautiful, regardless of what the building looks like. I love that. If our opponents center their worship in such things rather than in the proclamation of the gospel and faith and in its struggles, that should be classified with those whom Daniel describes as worshiping, worshiping their God with gold or silver. All right, now here's more Hebrews. They also quote the Epistle to the Hebrews, five verse one. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. For this, from this, they conclude that since the New Testament has priests and high priests, it must also have some sort of sacrifice for sins. This is a very convincing argument for the ignorant. Especially when the pomp of the New Testament, Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices is spread before their eyes. All right, so you see what what Melanchthon is suggesting they're doing, and I think he's right, is that the medieval Roman Church was aping was aping the Old Testament uh, liturgy, and trying to uh, giving even through the ceremonies giving some. Uh, indication that they were making this continual sacrifice for sins in their churches, right? So they'd be saying Mass all day, every day, just like you would have in the Old Testament temple. All right. Um, but they're aping it. And there's no need to if Christ is our Passover lamb. Yes, okay. The analogy deceives them and they think that that we should have some ceremony or sacrifice for sins just as the Old Testament did. Um, that includes um, like public displays of penance. I would I would include that in there. We don't do those. If you're penitent, confess to your priest or your pastor, right, and receive absolution. Um, the services of the mass and the rest of the papal order are nothing but a misinterpretation of the Levitical order. Oh, there you go. He summarizes it. All right. Now, here's here's one final point that we need to make tonight before we leave. Though the main proofs for our position are in the Epistle to the Hebrews. See, so if you, you want to understand the backstory of this whole article, Article uh, Twenty Four. Of the uh, Augsburg Confession, both and, and its apology, uh, the Epistle to Hebrews is the backstory. Melanchthon like, straight up says it. Our opponents twist passages from this very epistle against us, like this one, which says that, quote, every high priest is appointed to offer sacrifices for sins. That's, again, uh, Hebrews 5. The scripture itself adds immediately, 5 verse 2, by the way, that Christ is the high priest. Christ is the high priest. The preceding words talk about the Levitical priesthood and say that it was a picture of Christ's priesthood. The Levitical sacrifices for sin did not merit the forgiveness of sins in the sight of God. As we have already said, they were merely a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, which was to be the one propitiation, propitiatory sacrifice. Therefore, a large part of the epistle is devoted to the theme. This is this is all this was all <laughs> groundwork for next week as we get into chapter 9. Um, A large part of the epistle is devoted to the theme that the ancient priesthood and the ancient sacrifices were not instituted to merit the forgiveness of sins or reconciliation before God, but only to symbolize the future death of Christ alone. Right? So that's the theme of the book of Hebrews, is that all of that, did it give forgiveness of sins? Yes, by faith in Christ alone. You know, the sacrifices pointed to Christ alone our Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, as in the New, the saints had to be justified by faith in the promise of forgiveness of sins given for Christ's sake. Since the beginning of the world, all the saints have had to believe that Christ would be the offering and satisfaction for sin, as Isaiah 53.10 teaches, when he makes himself an offering for sin. You can see why this is so key. all All, again, The ancient priesthood and the ancient sacrifices were not instituted to merit forgiveness of sins or reconciliation before God on their own, right? But as types and shadows to symbolize the future death of Christ alone. All right, then paragraph 56. The Old Testament sacrifices, therefore, did not merit reconciliation, unless by analogy, since they merited civil reconciliation, that's reconciliation between one another or the people with the nation, but only symbolized the coming sacrifice, From this it follows that only the sacrifice of Christ can be valid for the sins of others and that there is no other such sacrifice left in the New Testament except the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You see, we preach Christ and him alone. We preach Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and uh, what? Something to Gentiles. (laughs) Rock of offense, I think. So here you have um, how does justification delivered in the divine service in the Old Testament, it's delivered through faith in the promise of forgiveness that comes through the coming Christ, right? Looking forward, and then um, in the New Testament, it's faith in the promise of forgiveness through Christ, which has been revealed in the cross, right? But in either case, it's in faith in Christ that gives forgiveness of sins, either in the promise or the promise uh, revealed, promise coming or the promise revealed. What does this say, then, about the priesthood? Um, This applies to how you understand your pastor. It is completely erroneous to imagine that the Levitical sacrifices merited the forgiveness of sins before God and that, by analogy, there must be sacrifices in the New Testament besides the death of Christ that are valid for the sins of others. If Christ's death is not the full and complete satisfaction for sins, then what's the point, ultimately? If something is still required from you in order to make it, in order to appease an angry God, angry over your sin, then what's the point of Christ and his death? This notion completely negates the merit of Christ's suffering and the righteousness of faith. Here it is. It corrupts the teaching of both Old and New Testament, and it replaces Christ as our mediator and propitiary, propitiator excuse me, with priests and sacrificers who daily paddle their wares in the churches. I don't know, probably should memorize this paragraph. Yep. Anytime it's Christ Jesus plus something else, it ends up completely neg- negating the merit of Christ's suffering and righteousness of faith. Right? We don't add anything to what Jesus has done for us, else we have no Christ. 58. If anyone argues, therefore, that the New Testament must have a priest who, sac- who sacrifices for sin, this can only apply to Christ. He is he is alone as our priest, who's made sacrifice for sin. The whole epistle to the Hebrews supports this interpretation. <laughs> we've been talking about it for we talked about it for a long time, a couple of months already, right? We would be setting up other mediators besides Christ if we were to look for some other satisfaction that was valid for the sins of others and reconciled to God. All right, one more paragraph here. Since the priesthood of the New Testament is a ministry of the Spirit, as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 the only sacrifice of satisfaction it has for the sins of others is the sacrifice of Christ. Right. So someone says, I'm troubled by my sins. How can I know that I'm forgiven? The answer is not, go and make penance, go and make amends, go and do this or that, right? go say Mass or whatever. The answer is, Jesus died for you to forgive your sins. And you say, well, where can I receive that forgiveness of sins? In the sacrament, Okay. Right. So then that drives them to the sacrament. Not to make satisfaction on their own, but to receive the satisfaction that Christ has earned for them. Sacramentally, see? Uh, New Testament has no sacrifices like the Levitical, which could be transferred to others, ex opera operato, that is, again, by the doing of the thing. But it offers to others the gospel and the sacraments so that thereby they may receive faith in the Holy Spirit and be put to death and made alive. Death and resurrection stuff. The ministry of the Spirit contradicts any such transfer ex opera operato. Through the ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in the heart. Therefore, this ministry benefits people when he does, uh, when he does work to give them new birth and life. This does not happen by the transfer of one man's work to another, by the doing of the thing. All right, And then there's more about all sorts of other things. So hopefully that helps you understand. And I think, you know, if we went all the way back to the beginning, I'm talking about the distinction between um, between a sacrament and a sacrifice, right? Uh, and the two different kinds of sacrifice, right? So there was those three distinctions that we made. Maybe I'll make myself big here again so you can see me. All right, three things to, to remember then. I Well, maybe more than three, but we'll try to make the um, important emphases here before we end. One is that a sacrament is God offering Himself to us. Grace, mercy, and peace, right? Um, and so we think Lord's Supper, baptism, absolution, right? A sacrifice is something that we offer to God, right? So a propitiary one is to offer a sacrifice to make atonement for sins. Um, and then uh, a, a Eucharistic sacrifice would be of uh, thanksgiving praise or prayer, okay? Now, of those two kinds of sacrifice, the first, the propitiary, the one for sins, to appease an angry God, right, to reconcile you to God, that has been accomplished once and for all by Christ Jesus at the cross. Right, He, for all mankind, has made the once and for all propitiary sacrifice in his blood. All right, so all we're left with is sacramental gifts, Jesus giving himself um, in the Preaching and and in the word attached to baptism, Lord's Supper, and forgiveness, absolution, and then our response of praise and thanksgiving, um, and prayer, liturgy, if you like, which is sacrificial. It is a sacrifice, right? But it doesn't appease an angry God. It doesn't merit forgiveness of sins. It doesn't work righteousness in us. That is given to us through the sacrament, right? And that that second kind of sacrifice, the sacrifice of um, propitiation. Has been accomplished once and for all by Christ Jesus, as was the case in the Old Testament through all the um, things, this, things that signified Jesus, that were types of Christ, that were analogies or um, similitudes, if you like, or shadows or images of Christ. Right? And uh, Melanchthon used all of those words in what we just read. The Old Testament, everything that all the all the Levitical service of the Old Testament, according to the writer of the Hebrews, and according to Melanchthon here all of that pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So it's all type, shadow, analogy, um, similar, signifying, that sort of thing. Um, and so that, I think that's key. I think if we understand that, that will really help a lot as we're moving forward um, in the book to understand those distinctions. So sacrament, God to us, sacrifice us to God, Right, and the only sacrifice that we're left with um, that pleases God, that is needed, I should say, is prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. All the Eucharistic sacrifices. And God loves to hear those things and receive those things. Not because they merit forgiveness of sins, or they earn righteousness, but rather because, like a good father, he loves to hear his children praise him and thank him for what he has done. Right? Okay. Whew. Hopefully that's helpful. I mean, I, I know... We were probably getting a little lost in the weeds when we were in chapter 8 uh, of Hebrews, and I felt like ah, we needed to really make some distinctions here that would help uh, as we move forward. So that's why we did what we did tonight. It's so not exactly the book of the Hebrews, although you saw it was quoted frequently here in the Confession. Um, so I encourage you to look the, uh, check this out. You can actually read the uh, Augsburg Confession uh, in... Oh, there's actually available a free version on the web. I'll link it up in the chat here, bookofconcord.org, I don't know if it'll come through or not. Nope, Facebook chat is not working. (laughs) Oh, there it did, did this time, all right, good. Whatever was going on with it before, it was broken. Well, so you can go and read this more if you want, but I I think you probably got the gist of it now, right? All right, good. So, uh, seeing no questions... It might be some later, those who watch on delay. Um, we don't, just to summarize again, we don't do things for the doing of them. And uh, if I'm your pastor or uh, if you're uh, you know, just checking in tonight and uh, you don't know why we do something that we do in church, ask the pastor, right? And if he says, I don't know why we do it, then it's actually probably important that you say, well, is it... S- is it actually wrong that we do it? Well, no. Okay, well then fine. We can retain it. Um, would it be, is there something better that we could be doing? Oh, well, can we do that, right? Is there something that would actually um, teach the faith better that we aren't doing? Right? Um, and, that's, and that's actually how I've come to the conviction of uh, retaining the historic liturgy that we do, uh, the order of the, of the divine service or the mass, if you prefer that term, um, i'm i'm i have that conviction uh, only because i have not found anything better to convey uh, who christ is for us in the giving of of grace mercy and peace and forgiveness of sins um if you can find something better let me know um, but uh, it's enough that we agree on the uh, preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments and uh, the liturgy i've i've not found a better liturgy to do it we have four, five different orders of them, but you get the idea. All right, so uh, that's enough ranting for me. Uh, God, God be with you all this evening, and I hope to see you again soon. Uh, join us for congregation and prayer tomorrow morning, nine a.m. See you then.